0: hey, this is Daley Johnson, producer and editor of How Art is Born. Our interview with Eric C. is our official finale to Season 2. If you've been tuning in for every episode this season, thank you so much for your support. If you're new to the show, welcome, and I encourage you to go back and listen to the rest of our amazing interviews with guests this season and in Season 1. How Art is Born will be releasing a few bonus episodes before the premiere of Season 3, so keep an eye out for announcements about some special episodes in January and February 2023. Again, thanks for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy this interview with Chef Eric C. Welcome to How Art is Born, a podcast from the Museum of Contemporary Art Denver about the origins of artists and their creative and artistic practices. I'm your host, R. Alan Brooks, artist, writer, and professor. Today I'm joined by Brooklyn-based Chef Eric C. Say hello, Eric. Hello, everybody. <laughs> hey, man, so to start us off, can you tell us a little bit about who you are? Oh, that I
1: don't. Know. What kind of podcast is this? Because there's a lot to unpack there. But um, <laughs> I guess on the surface level, superficial level, I'm a I'm a chef in Brooklyn. I have been here for 12 years. I'm originally from New Mexico, from Albuquerque, and um, I imagine that I'm here because I opened a restaurant called Ursula, uh, mm-hmm. named for my grandmother. That uh, I opened at the beginning of the pandemic in Brooklyn. It's a celebration of the intersections of my new mexican heritage and background and um the queer community here in brooklyn
0: Hmm. okay that's really cool man i gotta say uh you know we had a a chef on last season and um my ignorance around the culinary art rings true and consistent but one of the things that i think is really dope is hearing about um how this is an expression of what you believe, um, and looking into your work, I know activism is a big part of it, too. So I guess one of my sort of beginning questions is, how did you f- first sort of define your relationship with food? What was what stood out? What was the first time it spoke to you?
1: Um, I, to be honest, I don't know that my relationship with food was defined uh, mm. early on. It was a relationship with hospitality. Oh, ah, okay. And also, um, I think that food is like the great connector across cultures and languages, uh, false boundaries of nationalism. And oh. I used to want to be a travel agent when I was a kid. Oh. That was like my dream. Okay, I'm, I'm glad I didn't necessarily follow that route. I might be jobless today. Um, <laughs> right. But uh, I just I always love the idea of uh, cultural exchange and, and traveling and getting to hear and listen to new stories about people that I was unfamiliar with their traditions because you really only know what you know Right. until you know something else. And so I really loved getting to experience um, cultures outside of mine. Yeah. And I used to work in an airport diner when I was 11 oh. and uh, there would be these pilots. So be landing there all from different parts of the US just for a couple hours, they'd be exchanging stories about what they did in Nebraska or El Paso or wherever they were coming from. And just that exchange, I think, kind of really kind of uh, catalyzed more of my interest in, in travel and food and cultural exchange. Um, hmm. And I, I spent 14 years in the front of the house um, doing service and hospitality. I used to work at a, <clears throat> at a hotel in the front office, and I yeah. loved that. I just
0: I like taking care of people. Yeah. And, well, no, this is really cool. Uh, there, there's uh, I don't know. It's just a really distinct image of you being 11 years old working in the yeah. airport, uh, sort of collecting these stories or overhearing these stories. So, was was that like the the interest in hospitality, the interest in exchanging cultures? Was that something you discovered in that position when you were 11, or do you feel like it was just kind of always with you?
1: I I get. I would imagine that it's always been with me. Oh, yeah. There's there were a few pieces of that. I had a very like entrepreneurial spirit when I was a kid too, huh. and maybe what clicked then was like having cash in my hand. Oh, uh, right. Because being a little server at eleven years old and people giving you cash tips, I'd go home and like with little wads of of dollar bills in my hands, and that was really uh energizing my entrepreneurial spirit. I used mm-hmm. to sell newspapers outside the grocery store. I used to host little fundraisers at my elementary school to raise money for clubs that I made up. Um, (laughs) But I think it was just uh, the things that you don't necessarily understand to connect were probably the connectors when I was younger.
0: Hmm. Okay. So there's a part of what you were saying where like you're overhearing these stories about people having experiences and um, connecting with other cultures. Um, it feels like there's that aspect of it, but there's also the aspect of it, which is you bringing other people together. Um, and I wonder at what point that part of it formed for you. That part, I I would say probably started
1: to change when I owned my own cafe. Huh. Prior to Ursula, I had a small cafe. Okay. Um in Bushwick in Brooklyn and it was um it was a different concept, but I had indoor space, I had seating, I had the ability and resources to to gather people. And one of my um big loves and interests is being able to reinvest in communicate uh, in communities and to reallocate resources and to understand your privilege and share that with other people. Mm-hmm. And I understood that I have a had a privilege to run and own a business in Brooklyn, which is incredibly difficult to do. And I wanted to use that space to share with the community. So we were able to host different queer organizations to have their meetings or fundraisers. We um, had a lot of wall space in there. We had a a ton of uh, walls and really great light. So uh, I worked with local artists in the community to allow them to display their art. And we would host like a a gallery opening for them um, to be able to allow them to be celebrated. And that was when I really got to delve into that. I was in event production and catering for like seven years before that. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was a big part of like, celebration and getting people together and having parties and hosting parties but that was the first time that i got to do it in a more meaningful way that wasn't entirely centered around um like a consumerist and capitalistic view Uh, i'm not going to say that that's not a driving force for business because we have a for-profit business but it was um an opportunity for me to be able to use my resources for the community without the expectation of making money off of it
0: it's cool because it sounds like it uh, might might have been more rewarding in a different way 100 percent. yeah Huh. i
1: got to do a lot of really cool events i got to experience a lot there's far too much money in new york when it comes to event production for big brands and for uh artists and musicians out here so that was incredible to See those kinds of events come to fruition, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, it didn't feel like it had the the meaning and the the soul and the integrity of being able to have a small gathering for people who don't have the resources to do it uh, outside of those situations. Right.
0: Okay. Okay. So let's run it back. So we were talking about um, this experience when you were eleven. These kind of ideas of exchanging culture. You were saying that your way into this world is a love of hospitality. Um, I, w- I want to hear a little more of like what your journey was. So like in high school, were you connecting hospitality with food? Did you, was it college? Like, how did you kind of find your way on this path?
1: I would say that, yeah, it's kind of always been, it's all. it's been omnipresent my whole life. Um, mm. Wanting to be part of celebrations when I was a kid. Um, but I, I've, in terms of hospitality and getting to like run my own show or like be my own act, uh, I've worked in restaurants um, since I was like fourteen. Outside of this uh, illegal trade of child labor when I was eleven, <laughs> <Right>. um, <laughs> but uh, I, uh, I used to run like the drive-through counter at um, uh, a fast-food seafood spot, and even that was like really fun for me. I just liked giving hmm. people their food and talking to them the menu uh i worked at a new mexican restaurant in the takeout counter and i was a busboy. i loved being able to talk to people about the menu and help them um, find the things that i thought they would like i grew up outside of old town albuquerque so the Mm -hmm. restaurant that i was working at was um in a very like tourist heavy area so i got to talk to a lot of people about the culture where i come from and the menu that i'm very familiar with uh, and that was exciting. I think, um, I've always, even when I didn't think I was going to go into hospitality, cause it was never, it was actually never a a career path that I had envisioned. I went to college to study linguistics and I hmm. thought about doing kinesiology. Um, hmm. and it wasn't, I was always waiting tables or like in a restaurant part-time from 14 on. And, uh, it, it didn't ever strike me as a, as a career choice. In fact, like I kind of looked down upon people that were career waiters when I was younger and I was like, Oh, how sad to <laughs> be in this position and be 50. And huh. now to this day, I'm like, I get it. It's a love, it's a passion. And also I, as a business owner now, I kind of envy those people that were career servers because they have so much freedom in their life. Mm. They get to come and show up to work and do what they love to put on an act, to put on a show for somebody every single night. Right, um, and then go back. Then they get to clock out and go home, and huh. not have to have to worry about anything else. And they have financial security and freedom from their job. And I envy that. That was a uh, something that I wish I'd grasped huh. onto at a younger age. But um,
0: well, you know, it's interesting because there's a lot of people who uh, look at food service as a career that you do while you're trying to do your real thing. Um, yes, yeah. sounds like you might have had some of that, but now you've found a life and passion within it. Uh, yeah.
1: I don't know. I think I always wanted to be adjacent to food because it was, uh because it was adjacent to travel um, mm. and, and it was adjacent to linguistics. It was like all of those things were combined in the, into this um, industry in hospitality that I was like, wait a minute, I could do all of these things at the same time. Hmm. Um, I, don't speak a second language unfortunately and I lost I lost um a lot of the study that I had put into when I was in college but uh I'm still around different languages on different menus uh working with different people yeah um food is essential to travel and I get to host a lot of people visiting New York so I'm still touching on all of the things that drove me here in the first place. Hmm. Um, but now I get to do it on my own terms and I get to tell my own story. And I think yeah. that that's also um, what people are looking for in terms of um, how they consume food these days too.
0: Hmm. Okay. It's, just, it's interesting. Cause it's just cool to hear like, um, I don't know, what it means to you, you know, like what your journey is, how your passion connected to it all. Okay. So you went through this thing of um, working in different restaurants um, so was the next step for you to start your own or was it to grow within and establish one? How did that kind of work?
1: Well, so I was waiting tables in New Mexico, uh, 12 years ago. Uh-huh. Um, and my journey to the kitchen was the result of a failing relationship. Uh, <laughs> I, I was dating somebody who was a hairstylist and they didn't like that. I worked at night. Like uh, the impetus was on me to change my life and my schedule. Right. And so I was exploring other avenues for um, what my career or future might look like. And yeah. so I decided to go to culinary school. Um, huh. And I started that and I was like, wait a minute. Uh, I I started with the the idea of going into food and beverage management. I, w- I wanted to be like a sommelier or work with uh, like a bar program. Right. And then I was like, wait a minute, they work at night too. So that's not going (laughs) to work. And then I was learning how to cook and same thing. I was like, well, if I'm a chef, I still have to work at night and work on the weekends on holidays. And so I decided to go down the route of pastry and I spent six months in Vermont doing pastry at a culinary school there because I felt like there was a little more, um, variety of what your career could look like in pastry because if you're a baker you might be up at 3 a.m um Mm -hmm. if you're a pastry chef your work is doing prep during the day and then your pastry cooks work at night um so i thought i thought i was like well let me tinker with this i was never really that interested in pastry Mm
2: -hmm.
1: but going to pastry school and seeing the way that you could like manipulate these ingredients in such unique ways definitely caught uh my attention Mm -hmm. I came to New York to intern. I was supposed to leave after six months, huh. um, but I um, had also realized that in New York, in, in these big food cities, it's uh, your n- network is paramount to your pedigree. So I didn't go back to school because I had started to make some good connections here, and I wanted to right. keep them intact rather than having to start over. And twelve years later, I'm here still. <laughs>
0: You know, that's that's kinda of crazy, man, because like uh twenty ten, so yeah, twelve years ago, uh I had a I had a breakup that uh, you know, I had to like fill the time, uh, so that I wasn't feeling all the like emptiness and loneliness. Uh and I started hanging out. So I'm a I'm a graphic novel writer and uh, you know, I teach graphic novel writing at Beach University, stuff like that. Yes, you just had a new novel come out, yes. Oh, look at that. You looked some stuff up. Nice. I did. (laughs) Nice. Yeah, I did. But so, but like at this point, I had only read them all my life. Um, I had never tried to create one. And after this breakup, I started just somebody, I heard a rumor that there was a group of comic book creators who just hang out and drink and draw at this restaurant uh, or cafe. And so I just started hanging out, you know. And it uh, led to all of these relationships. Like I've never had a community of other people who like comic books before this. And uh, it just began this trajectory that led to, when the point came where I was like, you know what, I wanna write something. That would've been about 2016. Um, And now my life is like completely that. And it all kind of started with that breakup, (laughs) kind of like yours. Sometimes
1: we need that. Sometimes we need something to shake us up like that.
3: Hi, this is Valerie Cassell Oliver, curator of the exhibition, The Dirty South, Contemporary Art, Material Culture, and the Sonic Impulse. Occupying three floors at MCA Denver, The Dirty South makes visible the roots of Southern hip hop culture and reveals how the aesthetic traditions of the African American South have shaped the visual art and musical expression over the last 100 years. This exhibition features an intergenerational group of artists working in a variety of genres, from sculpture to painting and drawing to photography and film, as well as sound pieces and large scale installation works. Head over to mcadenver.org visit and use the code TDS20, that's tds 20 for a 20% discount on general admission for this exhibition which is on view until February 5th, 2023.
0: All right, so you're in, you're in New York, uh, you're doing the pastry thing. It's okay. So the reason I, I'm really digging this conversation, because it's cool to hear what it all meant to you as a kid, um, kind of your journey, because, you know, like in your bio, uh, you know, the info about you, like saying, it says that, um, that you, was that you made a cake for Beyonce or did dessert experiences, right? I have done that, yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, I I will ask a little more about it. Obviously, don't say more than you want to say about it, but I just think it's an interesting thing that you've gone from, um, you know, maybe being a travel agent to, to, (laughs) uh, well, I'll be in New York for six months to like starting a business during the pandemic, which is arguably one of the hardest times to start one. Um, to having kind of all of these successes, but also finding the successes in a way that is true to like who you are as a human being and who you are passionately and what you believe in and so anyway all, all of that I really dig so uh what was kind of next while you were in New York once you exceeded that six months did you did you continue to focus on pastries or did you kind of grow into other areas uh it was still it
1: was still focused on pastries um. I moved here. My brother lived here already and I was living on his his couch and he had agreed to house me for six months. Um, I will also say that I was interning here for free and working for $8 an hour. Um, (laughs) and the cost of living here in New York, uh, was not significantly different 12 years ago than it is now. Um, so at at the six month mark, he was like, well, if you're going to stay here, you have to find your own place. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And I was like, all right, fair, 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 fair. You gave me six months of free rent. Um, and you're right. Like you have to be thrown to the wolves out here if you're actually going to look to succeed. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I started waiting tables again, um, because I couldn't afford to only do pastry or work in kitchens. If, uh, if I was going to be living on my own and not living on my brother's couch for free. (laughs) Uh, so I was waiting tables. I enjoyed doing that again ish. I think I actually missed being in the kitchen as much. Um, I recall also just like waiting on waiting on people in New York at, I was working at a very trendy Thai restaurant in the West village and some of those customers can really pull (laughs) it your The, 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 the lines of your patience and, right. um, and passions. And I was like, this doesn't feel like hospitality anymore. Huh. Um, I just feel like I'm trying to keep my head above water waiting, right, at answering some of these questions. Uh, but I ended up waiting on a chef for this catering company, this event production company, who really liked me and offered me a job, huh. at their event company. And so I started working over there in the kitchen and doing events. Um, and I forgot where we were going with that, but that's what <laughs> happened uh, at that well, at that six month mark, oh yeah, I yeah, went back into pastry yeah um, yeah and i I did that I did uh pastry for events and uh event production, and I worked for a lot of like fashion and beauty lines uh beyonce I did desserts for uh rihanna when she when they oh. released the Fenty line the first time around I had to make desserts that were all um kind of reminiscent of some kind of piece of makeup. So like huh. something that was the same shade as this lipstick or that looked like lipstick, uh, uh, I would wait, do stuff.
0: I, I want to ask before you go on, like, that's, that's really dope. Cause now we're getting into like the, the really sort of artsy part of this, right? Like, so, so, uh, so Rihanna's people or whatever are saying like, okay, we want to do a dessert that matches this makeup. So do you, how do you start? Do you start with like, okay, well, here's something that's blue Are are you thinking like terms of like uh the emotion you know how do you connect it
1: kind of a lot of times it's l- very literal so what? um you're first you're thinking about colors and yeah. then i look at the logo a lot of times they would send you a design deck um, okay so you pick stuff off off of the design deck you look for different textures um so it's like all right this would be really great if it was cast in chocolate because that's very smooth Uh and you can get it really shiny Um, or maybe it's something that should be like a a cocoa butter that's sprayed on if you need like a rough sandy texture so looking through the the design decks you'd pull different ideas and textures it also depended on who the audience was going to be for these so Uh you had to make stuff that was either going to be like a literal piece of art that some people might not touch, but it was going to be photographed. Right. Or that 5,000 screaming Rihanna fans were all going to want to like throw in their mouth. So you got to make it. So I think for them, I did like a hexagonal shaped, um, like mini cheesecake with this pink hexagon of white chocolate. So it kind of looked like lipstick on top, but you could eat it. Um, And then there were other times that I would work for a, a different fashion line where I needed it to make it look like the texture of the fabric um, huh. so I might take one of the things that I used to like to do if I had to make any kind of fabric or skin looking thing is um, I would take chia seeds and uh. add a liquid to it like a sweetened passion fruit juice or like pomegranate juice and have you have you ever played with chia seeds much no it, it becomes very slimy like if you uh. let them hydrate and it's like a basil seed or a chia seed it okay. becomes very slimy like a pudding and then if you spread it out over a, uh, a silicone mat and dehydrate it, uh-huh. then the, whatever was gelatinous in that uh, solution um, remains, but all the liquid goes. So it becomes this like kind of this piece of fabric, like a fruit roll-up.
0: Which, oh, okay. It's
1: basically like creating a fruit roll-up, but yeah. um, it would have the texture with the seeds or it would have the
0: flavor of the passion fruit. Huh. Uh, so I got to
1: like create textiles or
0: yeah. create an edible well, lipstick. This is fascinating to me because it's like, uh, well, first of all, just the idea of um, you designing desserts for an aesthetic look. But I guess one of my questions is, how do you know? Like, how do you know what Chia he's do when it comes? Is it just experience? Is the stuff that you have uh, picked up over the years? Uh, and then I'll ask my next question after that
1: i research uh,
0: uh looking stuff up the
1: uh youtube okay <laughs> youtube helps um i have a ton of cookbooks too so looking through those kinds of things yeah. um following people online yeah there's a lot there's so many resources out there for you to uh, to learn this kind of stuff
0: that's so cool i mean because i do that with comic book art but for some reason within the culinary world it you know it just doesn't even occur to me uh okay and then it, is there um do you have a specific direction for flavor or taste when you're doing those kind of things? Like, obviously you want to taste good, but you're thinking about like the look you're designing and stuff like that. But are you also saying, okay, um, the thing that's going to match this look will be strawberry. I don't know, you know, something like that.
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think it makes sense to, um, coordinate a color with a recognizable flavor. So, Uh um, Doing a blueberry flavored uh, dessert with a, with a pink shell on it doesn't really make sense to right. the person. Unless what you're trying to do is uh, counter what the psychology is of a color, which is stuff that you have had to do in events before as well. Mm. But um, yeah, normally you kind of uh, make sure that the flavors, the colors, the textures are all linear so that yeah. it, it's not off-putting. Huh. For the guests when they're eating it, I've had to do a lot of stuff with uh like candle companies too. So they'll send me the the scent of this new candle that they're um releasing, and so I have to find the esters or compounds that are in the candle yeah. that would be palatable. Enough, yeah, um, yeah, that you would want to eat, or something that gives you the illusion of musk without having to eat something <laughs> like that. Right. Or uh, what's the Ambergris is one of them that I've had to do before. Mm. And I can't remember what I did before to like create that idea, but I don't know if you know what ambergris is. It's like, no. uh, it's the excrements of whales that are like found in the ocean floating. <laughs> That's um, such a
0: pretty name. <laughs> yeah, I know it is. <laughs> uh, so
1: they would find it floating in the ocean and it's actually a, a compound in many, many perfumes and colognes. Huh. Um, but trying to, I think that I went for uh, like a visual for that. I can't recall, but huh. like doing something that was like amber, like a petrified situation. Yeah. So you might look to texture to recreate that scent compound rather than trying to recreate what it would taste like to eat the uh, vomit of a whale.
0: <laughs> I gotta say, like I said, it's fascinating. It's really dope to hear, like, uh... I don't know how you approach your art with this stuff. Now, I, I know a big part of uh, just your life is uh, activism, um, specifically, uh, well, particularly in the LGBTQ plus space. So um, I, I want to hear about how that connects with your, is it is it part of your culinary work or is it uh, sort of just like parallel to it?
1: Um, It's both. It's both because it's my it's part of my identity. Right. And you that's inextricably tied to my to my lived experience, which then is manifested in my food. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's also the people that are around me. Yeah. Uh, And my restaurant specifically, it's um, the people that work for me. Mm -hmm. Most of my staff is queer and trans identifying. Hmm. Um, A lot of my friends here in New York are. And I think that um, I've always wanted to have some connection to community at every point in my life. Um, But uh, there's so much going on, there's so many things, so many people, so many organizations and communities that need help, that need resources, and it can just become very overwhelming if you don't um, focus your energy into something that is, actually tangible because it's like well if i put 25 cents over here 25 cents over here like that's not doing anything so i'm like there there are people that have better resources or information to coordinate and help this organization and i let them do that mm-hmm. and i can focus on my community because i'm in touch with it because i'm part of it right um and i'd rather focus more energy on this one part so it's been a cornerstone of my business for the last seven years even before it opened ursula to um, connect with, to fundraise for, to advocate for queer-based organizations here in New York and around the country. Huh. It, it started actually with a fundraiser that I did at a market, um, huh. which it's really odd to have this conversation today given what happened yeah. in Colorado Springs yesterday. Right. But my first big fundraiser was for the, um, uh, the victims of the Orlando massacre.
0: Oh, wow, yeah. Uh, I, I guess uh, just for people listening, we should note that we're recording this just a couple of days after the uh, Colorado Springs shooting in the Club Q. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I've been thinking about that a lot and I'm thinking about how that... So, okay, so for me, when I when I want to address a social issue or uh, try to make change, it is composing a story that captures some aspect of humanity um in a way that hopefully uh, creates unity or compassion or empathy. Um, it seems like a lot of your creation is about community, connection, hospitality, things you mentioned. And specifically since this this bar, uh, Club Q, was about community and gathering, I wanna hear like, I don't know, how, how it is, how it sits in your mind, like when you want to use your creativity to engage with social issues. Obviously, it's not gonna be like me writing a story. So what is that process like for you? Um, I
1: think that that's, a, again, it's like inextricably tied to my work because mm-hmm. food is political. Yeah. And um, it's the access to food. It's the access to yeah. um, who, who gets access to it, who's making the food, who is growing the food and harvesting the food, um, who's creating the policies um, surrounding the way that our food systems work and distribution. So it's Mm. like, you can't get away from politics and food. And, uh, so I think that it's on us to make sure that we, um, continue to advocate in ways that are supportive of our communities internally. Um, yeah, you can't really get away from that. Yesterday, actually, the day, the same day, the same morning that we found out about the news in Colorado Springs, I was part of a big fundraiser here in New York for the yeah. Alley Forney Center. It's a, it's the country's largest uh, LGBTQ plus homeless and shelter and tradi- transitional system. Um, they provide medical services and gender affirming care for Trans folks, they have uh, temporary and long term housing for queer and trans people here in New York. Mm. And we had spent months and months working on this dance a thon um, where it was going to be this day long event where there were different drag queens and DJs performing. They had a, a, like a culinary corner with different queer chefs serving food. And uh, we raised about half a million dollars from mm. this event. Um, mm-hmm. But I remember waking up and reading that and uh, right then having to go to this event and like be cheery and happy Mm. but i was like no this is the reason that you have to have these events so you have to continue um expressing joy and because joy is a form of resistance and the people that are threatened by that are the ones that want to take it away from you so you can't stop
0: MCA Denver at the Holiday Theater is a hub for the arts located in this historic 400-seat theater. We aim to realize one-of-a-kind creative experiences for audiences that spark curiosity, challenge conventions, inspire, and delight. Visit MCADenver.org to learn more about the robust schedule of museum-driven and collaborative programming. I feel you there. I think that's very well said. I think, um, I don't know, man, people who... uh, attack basically they just want us to all be smaller and yeah. quieter and in that box it was a, a couple of years ago I got death threats over a graphic novel that I was working on that was an allegory for leaving white supremacist movements mm-hmm. and um you know it was the first time I had that and I had to really think through what is my response to this you know like and uh and I really did get that sense that it was intended to make me quieter and smaller and uh what you're saying about the expression of joy, the full expression of hum- your humanity, I think it is a necessary and powerful way of fighting back against this kind of stuff. It's not the only way. You know, there's a lot of things that have to happen, but it's an important element of it. And um, I don't know, it's just cool to hear what you just said.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it's not the only way. We got we to gotta be more effective at policy making and no changing doubt. laws to protect us all. Uh, and to dismantle the uh, systems of white supremacy and oppression too.
0: Yeah. And uh, showing up and removing the people from office who are fighting against those goals. Uh, There's this whole, uh, you know, I mean, I'm sure you've been around a lot of disenfranchised people like I have who uh, question whether it makes any, whether there's any value in voting. I know it's a little off topic, but it just makes me think about like, if if there was no value to it then why are why are so many people invested in making us stop why are they spending so much money to change laws and districts and you know whatever uh to to rob people of the vote i don't know just no do you i
1: know no it's true it's uh it's it, it you feel powerless often you feel powerless yesterday you feel powerless yeah. during elections when the right people aren't winning these elections and that's that is the purpose it's supposed to be taking away our power and our voice
0: which goes and, back to making us smaller again,
1: right? Yeah, exactly. But that's also that's why it's so imperative to um, to find ways to continue telling your own story through your art, whether that's um, through a expression of queerness or yeah. through an expression of uh, like racial or ethnic identity, whatever it is, and telling your story through that. So, because it's always gonna it's gonna reach somebody else. It's like oh wait yeah i forgot that that's part of my identity because there have been so many people trying to remove that from who i am right and so when you continue to hear more and more people talking about it then it makes you feel stronger and empowered
0: you know uh that this there's this theme i think with all of the different artists that i talked to on this podcast just about how our art is a way of i don't know expressing some part of our humanity you know and um and also the interest in experiencing the humanity of other people. So it's really uh, inspiring, refreshing to hear how it manifests in your practice. I just think this it's just dope, you know? Mental high five.
1: Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not, and it, it's weird to talk about, like, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, but it's really, I'm not the one doing it. I'm just, I just happen to have the space or the resources to help other people do it Mm -hmm. and that is that brings me a lot of joy is to be able to be to bear witness to that to be able to celebrate and witness other queer people's joy Mm -hmm. um and that i think that's what's most fortifying about it and talking about um the way it manifests itself in people's art i think that just I think we, I I also, I just watched this movie called The Menu uh, Mm. earlier today. I I saw the trailers.
0: I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. It
1: it was really good. It's, uh, it's kind of like a a dark comedy horror, but um, there's a lot of commentary on the like egoism of uh, chefs these days, but Uh. also just the way that consumerism ruins uh, the joy for artists in general, Mm. the way that they, um, have become their own like self-proclaimed uh, experts on right. things. Or the way like food reviewers for magazines and newspapers uh, come in and will write a terrible review and just ruin the, the livelihoods of dozens of people and um, essentially shutting down a restaurant with one bad review. Right. Uh, and the way that people just break down your food as though they understand where it's coming from or what it's supposed to mean and it's the same way with the way that people receive art through music, or I, I've learned a lot about the way that I try to talk about other people's art, right. that if it, that it's not, I've tried to reframe my verbiage uh, that if something, if I don't like something, it's not that it's not good. It's just not for me. Yeah. And that's fine. Not everything is to, meant to be received by me. Mm-hmm. And, and that's okay. And I think that we live in this, uh, this world now of exceptionalism and individualism in New York, but also like, uh, I mean, in America, and where we're supposed to have access to everything and people aren't used to being told no, they don't like being told no. So if this painting sitting in front of me isn't for me, I'm being told no, that, right. I, can't, that I can't have this, that it wasn't made for me. And that's <laughs> upsetting the people. And it's like, no, it's just, it's not for you. And that's okay. There'll be another one. <laughs> I've had, I've had people get online and say that the food is terrible or this and this. And I'm like, no, actually it's really good. I know right. it's good. Uh, Cause I eat it every day. <laughs> I know it's good. Yeah. It's just not for you and that's okay. Uh, I love that. And it's it. Yeah. It's an expression of people's lives. Like yeah. there are things on the menu that are there because of lived experiences that mm. are be- that are because of my queerness or because of my, family having been in New Mexico for 400 years and mm, this wow. being so deeply rooted in that region or just, um, my travels or we have, uh, some herbal teas that are tea lattes there that I've blended myself from a period of time when I, uh, took for some sobriety cause I had, uh, struggled with some alcoholism okay. and was not drinking for a little while. And so I'm one of those people that always need some kind of vice at the end of the night. <laughs> And I started mixing herbal teas huh. to relax at night. And so those are in my menu now. And that's all part of my journey. Right. And that's all part of the art that you see. Uh, you see those things in somebody's painting, in somebody's music, in somebody's yeah. food. And so for you to sit there and try to deconstruct everything as so you understand it, it's like, no, then right. it wasn't for you.
0: I love that you're saying that cause it because, you know, so I found for myself when I was younger, I, expressing strong opinions on movies or television shows or whatever, um, that even though I was saying something that was true to me, that I was robbing other people of their enjoyment of something. And so, uh, that's my... a problem. <laughs> well, you know, for me, it was like, all right, well, I actually don't have to lambast it. I can't just say it's not for me, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and if they wanted like a deeper opinion, that's a whole other thing. And so, you know, I, I've, I've found that to be part of my own, um, My own vocabulary now is that generally my answer if I don't like something is just like "Eh, it wasn't for me, you know. Yeah. Um, Okay, but I do think this might be a good time to talk about since uh, you were talking about criticism and stuff like that. When you feel fear in your creative process, what's it like? How do you get through it?
1: I think I I have I have some good friends and family that Mm. I talk a lot of things through. Um, I think this goes back to i'm often asked like what advice i have for small business owners Uh um and yeah people getting started on their own uh dreams and i think that it's uh we're so often uh, afraid to ask questions um from our peers from our family members from our friends because it's uh it's it's making we th- we think we believe we're taught to believe that asking questions or not knowing is weakness right and vulnerability and uh, in fact I think that 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 is a strength in knowing that you can find those answers and save yourself the time and emotion and risk by asking questions. So whenever I'm fearful of something or I'm doubting myself, I, I ask people.
0: Hmm, that's that's good because it, it it ties into. Uh, community and um like all the things all the themes that you've been talking about this whole time about people sort of coming together hospitality community all of that stuff and it ends up being sort of your your way out of fear too which is yeah no absolutely really
1: i they the, my community my friends and family are my biggest cheerleaders and so also when you're asking questions that's that time for them to uh kind of reinstate your value for you Remind right. you who you are. Remind you that you are powerful, or that you are an artist. Yeah. Um. And sometimes you just need to hear that because we have our own like internal monologues uh, that are trying to beat us down. <laughs> it's so true.
0: Okay. Uh. I usually like to wind up by asking two questions. One of them is, um, what's what's inspiring you? What's your geeky pleasure these days? Like songs, music. Uh, I guess that's the same thing. Television shows. <laughs> Food, whatever. What what's inspiring you these days? Oh man, that's a that's a lot. <laughs> um,
1: all of all of the above. I love I love listening to music and um, live music or even just like a a, a playlist or something with dinner, mm-hmm. with it like a at a restaurant or like at a dinner event. I just think is so integral to experience. Um, so I. I'm always inspired by music. Um, I've been really into this is something that I think a lot of people started doing at the beginning of the pandemic, um, rediscovering themselves and where they came from. And I think that that has been probably the most essential part of my process in the last two years. I never, never in a million years thought that I was going to be serving New Mexican food in Brooklyn. That was never part of my (laughs) plan. Right. Uh, and I never even thought that I was gonna be like a savory chef or or continue down this path. And so getting to uh reacclimate myself with the land and culture that I'm from, mm-hmm. um, the history of the food in the southwest. Yeah, that has been very gratifying for me. And also just learning all the history and information that we weren't taught or that was hidden from us.
0: Hmm. Okay. Well, uh <coughs> excuse me, what do you have on the horizon like what's what's coming up for you?
1: Um, I'm about to release our second annual holidays cookie box uh, nice. that's a fundraiser for um the alle forney Center again holidays discussed holidays, happy holidays. <laughs> I usually get twelve different queer chefs from around the country this year. We even have somebody in Mexico City and Ireland. they each submit a cookie and we put it in the box, and it's a fundraiser for the alley 40 center. We raised $10,000 last year, we can do $15,000 this year. And I have to move my restaurant from its current space um, to a new space. So I'm hoping to have a lease to sign next week, oh, nice. and be able to move to a new larger location that will have a bar, indoor seating and a backyard. Ah, right be? now, I don't know how much you know about our spot. But we were open. I opened during the pandemic as like a, a response to not having a job. I was afraid that nobody was going to hire a pastry chef um, right. for the next couple of years. I opened this spot as a takeout spot thinking it was going to get me through the next year and then I'd figure it out. And we're two and a half years in. We don't have indoor seating. Winter is coming. Uh,
2: <laughs> uh,
1: yeah. New Yorkers have a little less patience for it this year than
0: they did the last two years.
1: <laughs> so I'm excited to have indoor seating.
0: Okay. I mean I, I love that I love that you're expanding. I love that it's worked out. Um Okay. Yeah, well so all right. <laughs> if if people want to check out your stuff, uh if they're you know outside of New York, like a, I don't know, where can they interact with your stuff online?
1: Uh Instagram at Ursula underscore Brooklyn or my own social media is at Eric the Awkward Scone. My old cafe was called the Awkward Scone. That's where that came
0: from. <laughs> cool. Hey, well, Eric, I, I really appreciate you talking to me. It's been a it's been a cool conversation.
1: Thank you. I appreciate you all having me, and I I was really excited to uh, have a connection to the Rocky Mountain region. So thank you,
0: Denver. <laughs> nice. Uh, special thank you to today's guest, Eric C. Thanks to our listeners. Please be sure to subscribe to How Art Is Born wherever you get your podcasts for more episodes. And if you can, leave a review. It really helps us out. Check out MCA Denver on YouTube and subscribe there, too, for behind-the-scenes clips from today's episode. Season 3 of How Art is Born is coming in Spring 2023. Until then, keep an eye out on our feed for special bonus episodes of the show. Don't forget to visit MCA Denver's current exhibition, The Dirty South, on view until February 5th, 2023.